Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. You know, when I started covering comedy over a decade ago, it was really rare for a comedian to be able to play theaters. It was like two or three, maybe four people. And it meant you've been able to build your own audience, not just people who want to see comedy that night, your own fans over decades of touring and high profile Hollywood work and often like clever fan based management systems. Where now, I I look at the calendar at Town Hall in New York, or the Wilbur Theater in Boston, or the Warner Theater in D.C., and I recognize all the names, but often I feel like I have no idea how they got so popular. And I'm not mad. I'm just like, whoa, look at them go. And often, my assumption, which is proven correct, uh, is TikTok. Um, Sometimes it's Instagram. Sometimes it's YouTube. But I call all of those things TikTok. Um, and and though he isn't the only example, uh, what I'm exactly describing is where Namesh Patel is in 2022. Pre-pandemic, Namesh was doing okay. He is years removed from his one-year stint as the first ever Indian writer for SNL and the time he made national news for being asked to leave the stage during a performance at Columbia. He also uh, just left a job as a field producer for Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. And he was working and well-regarded, but I don't think anyone was thinking an explosion was imminent. He was just like a solid comic. But two years later, he has one million followers on TikTok, a following that has kickstarted his touring business and made him a model that so, 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 so many comedians are now following. Earlier this year, after releasing two other hour collections that are more like mixtapes, Nimesh put out his first proper hour special on YouTube, called Thank You China, again referencing TikTok. The joke we're going to play is from that hour. It is about healthcare, a topic Namesh has long been obsessed with. There's actually more healthcare material in the special that we won't get to. And based on our conversation, Namesh probably has even more coming. But let's start with this joke. Here is Namesh Patel. I don't trust medicine either. Because healthcare is a criminal enterprise. Healthcare is a criminal enterprise. It is. I wasn't concerned about getting COVID and dying. 
when it's your time to go, you go. I was concerned about getting COVID, being in a hospital for two weeks, and then coming out with a bill for $2 million. That's what I was terrified <laughs> of. That happened to multiple people in this country. The greatest country in the world, multiple people got $2 million bills for having coronavirus. If I was in a coma for two weeks and I came out with a bill for $2 million, I would laugh myself back into the coma. <laughs> $2 million, yeah, put the shit on China's tab. I pay for that shit. Call up Xi Jinping, tell him Nemesh Patel owes him $2 million. $2 million? $2 million. Because healthcare is a criminal enterprise. Healthcare has this virus known as capitalism. That eye roll you just heard is all my finance friends being like, oh, another communist, here we go. Goddamn right, I'm communist. I love China. Do you understand? <laughs> and this virus has obviously infected hospital companies, billing companies, pharmaceutical companies. They're fucked. But now this virus has gone on to doctors. And I know this firsthand because I have 16 first cousins. <laughs> Five of them are doctors. And all we do is argue about healthcare prices in America. Why don't you do something about healthcare prices? And all my doctor cousins say the same thing. Our hands are tied, okay? Our hands are tied. It's a system that's broken, which is the dorkiest way of saying, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> Doctors don't do shit because their hands are tied with money. That's what the problem is. <laughs> Listen, we care about people. We don't do it for the money. And then they drive off in a Tesla. It's like, wait, what, bro, what? <laughs> Mother Teresa never had no Model 3. <laughs> they don't do anything. They won't even change the price of Band-Aids. You know how much a 15-cent Band-Aid is in a New York City hospital? A 15-cent Band-Aid? $7. Because apparently the hospital is also the mini-bar at the Ritz-Carlton. $7? Seven, seven dollars. It's never some fly Band-Aid. Doesn't have Elmo on it. It's not an off-white Band-Aid that says Band-Aid. It's just a, reg <laughs> a regular Band-Aid. You know how much a knee cost in this country? $25,000. You know how much a Toyota Camry costs? $22,000. And I've never known a need to get 192,000 miles. You can't get a discount on a knee. You can't hobble into the doctor's office like, hey, say, bro, anything you do for the, come on, man, come on, man, come on, man, please, please, come on, man. The doctor would be like, well, you could suck my dick, but the irony would be too profound. You getting on two knees to get one new one? <laughs> get the fuck out of my office. See, the problem is that we treat doctors like saints in this country. But really, to me, they're like prostitutes. They provide a necessary service. You can identify them by their clothing. And if you can't pay, they have you by the balls. But at least prostitutes have the decency to tell you how much they're going to charge. With a doctor, you just get fucked. <laughs> Go ask any doctor, hey, hey, doc, uh, how much is this procedure about to provide? I don't know, you gotta talk to my pimp, Blue Cross Blue Shield, I got nothing to do with that, man. <laughs> and doctors get real upset when I talk all this shit. Oh, you're just jealous, you weren't smart enough to become a physician. <laughs> Listen, anyone can go to the Caribbean, okay? It's not that difficult. <laughs> It ain't easy, but it ain't hard. <laughs> You're just jealous. <laughs> Doctors all justify their high salaries by saying, uh, we get paid so much because med school is so expensive, okay? And I understand that. Okay. Hear me out. Here's a solution I proposed. How about we 
eliminate all medical school debt. We eliminate all medical school debt, and then we pay doctors minimum wage. <laughs> Don't worry, there'll be tips. <laughs> Cash tips. Thanks for keeping the lube warm, doc. <laughs> Any doctors here? Yeah. Clap if you're a doctor. You're a doctor? Where are the other doctors at? Doctors, doctors. Okay, staff, please make note of where the doctors are. And by the way, if you're afraid of saying you're a doctor, just pretend I'm a pharmaceutical sales rep. Okay, we got, we got doctors here, got doctor here, doctor here. I know I've been harsh. As a special treat on your way out, you'll be charged $400 for no fucking reason. Surprise medical bill, bitch. That's what happens, facility fee for stepping into this motherfucker. <laughs> so let's start here. It, it seems like at some point you really wanted to become a doctor, and I feel like that's a good place to start. Why, and then what happened? Well, I was uh, heart set on being a doctor since I was probably a very young age. I think um, I think my parents had kind of always instilled the idea, like, hey, doctors, like, they make decent money, but it's really about the respect and, and how... Um, in India, like doctors are held in such high regard because they are so smart that they could really do anything, but they become mm -hmm. physicians who obviously don't not make money, but make money, but are, are more about helping people and caring about people. And so that was always kind of like subtly nodded to me. And then I had a family friend who uh, was when, when I was like very impressionable, like 10, 11 years old, was born and uh, had a hole in his heart. And I always like had a for whatever reason, I just wanted to say, I got to be a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. Like, that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid, <laughs> which is like a ridiculous thing, but like that, hyper specific, but that's what yeah, I wanted yeah, to yeah. do. And then throughout my middle school, high school careers, I was like, you know, I, I was book smart um, and I did well on, on tests and all that kind of stuff. And I had this idea, I was, I'm just going to be a doctor. Like, that's it's obvious that I, that's what I'm going to do. Um, I went to MLU, was pre-med, uh, did really well my freshman year. Sophomore year, I decided, you know, I'm at one of the best undergrad uh, finance programs in the country. Why not be a, a pre-med finance major? All my electives can be uh, mm -hmm. uh, pre-med classes, which uh, in hindsight was a very dumb decision. I did not take any advantage of the fact that I was at uh, the NYU. I could have been uh, any number of things, you know, creative yeah, yeah. writing. I could have been a class with Donald Glover or whatever, you know, like who knows what could have happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But here I was like studying like financing i really didn't give a shit about it nor that i really know much about it i just thought this is what people do here so let me do it um which is kind of like how my uh, uh in hindsight my medical pursuit went to it's like oh that's just what we do and that's what i've been mm. instilled to do i'm gonna do that um and then you know i was really about it i i'm not even gonna lie like you know i was like man i, I want to i want to open up hospitals in kenya like i i want to you know, I was like, I'm gonna be one of these MD MBAs that opens yeah. up medical tourism clinics. You know, I read all these HBS studies about like medical tourism in India and how how it's like the new frontier and all this. And then my my junior year, I got a C plus in organic chemistry, and, and I was like, well, well, all right, maybe I really don't actually want to do this. Like, I was mm -hmm. also going through a lot of personal shit. I was all sorts of screwed up and confused. And uh, I dropped pre-med in between my first semester, junior year, second semester, junior year. I'll never forget that conversation I had with my mom. Like, I never heard a woman yell louder on the phone in my life. 
um to this day she i it was it was like what like i shattered her heart and uh uh and then I was like, all right, I guess I got to do finance. Um, but I wasn't the strongest finance student. I got mm -hmm. a, I graduated in 08 with a, a finance degree, which um, at the time <laughs> was probably the, the funniest thing, thing yeah, you could yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and 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 to combine that with the fact that I wasn't a very strong student, I got three, four, three, five, which at NYU is like okay, but when all of your peers yeah. were recruiting to Goldman and Lehman and uh, you know everywhere, Bear Stern, everywhere else, um, at, that were still operating banks at the time, like, you know, three, five, wasn't going to cut it. Nor was my heart in the, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the business, so to speak. And so dabbled around, uh, and then Oh nine, I went back to NYU to take like a, like a post grad, uh, writing class. Like it was really one of these like personal essay writing, writing classes. And I was like, this is fucking corny as shit. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't tell a bunch of bunch of strangers of like the sadness in my life i don't want to talk about this at all and uh uh and i, I stopped that i mean i took the class it was like 10 weeks or something yeah. and then um i was underemployed and unemployed at home in jersey and uh i i wish i could tell you what like what the exact decision point was i was like maybe i should just do maybe i'll just go on stage and yeah write some funny shit and and, and see what happens but that's what I ended up doing is August 19th, 2009, almost, you know, 13 years ago now. Um, and I found an open mic at Stress Factory in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Went on stage and I, I stacked the deck. I had like 20 of my cousins there like, oh, he's going to do, you know, five minutes of stand up. All right, let's do it. And you had to bring people to do it. And so yeah, yeah. I, I, I had people come and uh, I didn't do poorly. I remember going fine slash well relative to some of the other people that went up and uh that was it really i caught the bug and at that point i was like all right this is what i want to do i i mean i'm sure like generally you're aware of it as as a person but like clearly you had like some interest in healthcare and probably started realizing like so much of the healthcare industry is bullshit but was there like a specific incident where you're like i need to be talking about this on stage because it is particularly this 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 is so much worse and sort of comically bad in a way that must be known there were two kind of incidents that kind of blend together um one of them which i didn't have the comedic temperament to take full advantage of at the time mm. um which was in like january of 2016 in november 2015 like i got a writing job for the oscars for chris rock right and i was like oh shit i'm gonna be at the oscars in february i gotta get in shape and so I hit the gym like a lot heavier than I should have. And I got a hernia <laughs> and, mm. and, uh, I had to have a hernia operation. Like while we were running for the Oscars in between, there was like a two week gap where I could like get the operation. And I didn't have insurance at the time because my job had just ended and Cobra was like 800 mm. bucks or 900 bucks a month or some shit. And I was like, well, I, I can't afford that. I don't have a job. The surgery itself was going to cost like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. But luckily, the doctor was like, no, we'll do it for $1,000. Don't worry about it. Like, we'll take care mm -hmm. of you. You need the surgery. I'm sure um, it'll, you'll be okay. They did the surgery. And I didn't have the the wherewithal to be like, oh, this is, this is telling me something about the healthcare business right now. Uh, I was just very grateful. Went to the yeah. Oscars, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think like a year or so later, um, I had an asthma attack. Uh, I smoked a, a lot more weed than I should have. Um, and... To the point where like my lungs were like i never 
I'm very like I listen to my body pretty well, mm-hmm. and it was just something when I was in bed. I was like, I, I'm afraid to go to sleep right now because I don't want to wake up like dying. And so yeah. oh, I went to the hospital with my then girlfriend, now wife, NYU Langone, right down the street from where I live. Um, and I don't know if you know if a, a school has a fancy man's name attached to it. <laughs> if a hospital has a fancy man's name attached to it, something murky is going on over there. Um, and granted, NYU, for, for all its flaws, like they do med school is free for their doctors now i don't know what their end game is just just yet (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, i'm sure it'll come to light at some point um but i went down the street and i refused to call an ambulance because i had read you know just anecdotally ambulance is like a thousand dollars and i'm like three blocks away i was like i'll tip a driver run some lights i'm not i'm not gonna get in this 600 800 ambulance that may not even take me to the closest hospital they might take me to the hospital they're affiliated with um and so i just took an uber to the hospital i was like yo i cannot breathe i feel like i know i'm having an asthma attack uh like my lungs super, feel super tight all i need and this is i had asthma I, I have asthma so i was like i know exactly what i need like don't try to yeah yeah don't try to upcharge me on shit you know like i had read like this is how the system they like, try to bring you in and test you for every single thing and i was like all right just give me the albuterol I'll be in and out. I got suckered into taking a chest x-ray because, um, uh, you know, they kind of, I was like, do I really need one? Like, yeah, you should probably get one. I was like, all right, I got an x-ray. And then a few weeks later, you know, again, I didn't, ha- I think I had insurance. So I'm not sure if I had insurance at the time. Um, but when I got the bill, it was, like I said in the bit, it was six, $7,000. I'm like, I yeah. was there for an hour and a half. And I understand my life was saved to a certain extent. But literally, if they gave me an inhaler, I would have been fine. I think it was like $5,000 just to walk in. It just says NYU emergency room fee, $5,000. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, that's rent that we're paying yeah. them. And then, you know, $1,600 or something for the, um, for the x-ray itself. And uh, I forget, like... I, I wish I could pull the bill up. It's somewhere in my cabinet. But at some point, they said, like I read on the doc, like there's financial assistance available if you can't afford to pay. And I was like, okay, I could ask my parents for some of this money. I have some money saved up, but I don't want to take $6,000 out of my savings just to, because I fucked up and smoked too much weed and then the system's broken. Anyway, fuck this system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I called them. I was like, listen, I'm, I don't have 6G. And, you know, like I said in the bit, they literally said, like, how much can you afford to pay? I was like, wait, what? There's a, the, who am I talking to? How much can I afford yeah, yeah, to pay? Yeah, yeah. Like, what if I start the negotiation at zero? <laughs> and, and I mean, my parents raised me well, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just always start at zero. If they want more, they'll ask. And I was like, uh, nothing. And they're like, okay, well, we understand the position you're in. Like, just please put in writing that you can't afford to pay this. Um, and that, you know, cause you undue duress if you couldn't pay this and i said okay and i sent them a letter they wiped the bill clean and i'm very thankful that that happened but i'm also very aware that the system is making profit hmm. uh uh hand over foot and i i i know i'm part of the problem but i i'm i'm not as i say in the bit again like don't hate the player hate the game like this is just how it is and if yeah. everyone's taking advantage of the system, then who am I not to take? I'm the patient. I'm the one who should be yeah. taking advantage of the system. So you you have that that bit which you you do uh, that story which you tell in the special. You also have the joke about sort of America needs healthcare but doesn't deserve healthcare. That joke you've had for a while. Yes. 
you also had a, you did a segment you produced on, I believe, Sam B about healthcare. And then you have this joke, which it seems new, I believe. What was the initial spark for, for this joke about sort of how much Band-Aids cost, that part of it, the healthcare is a criminal enterprise? Where did this sort of thread come from? So that, you know, uh, started evolving when I was working at Sam B, right? Like that, that, that piece that I produced, which was my final piece, was actually the piece that I pitched to help get me the job. Like that was my marquee piece. I was like, mm-hmm. I think healthcare is broken. We got to do something about it because no one else is doing anything about it. Um, and I started reading all these NPR articles about people like the NPR has this great column. Um, well, people send in like crazy bills they've received and they try to break down like what's happening and what's happening within the system. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I was like, oh, I've, I've been part of this. Like, I, I know what's going on here. And then, you know, I read this article about, you know, this woman who went to the hospital for like a simple cut on her finger emergency room the bill itself was like 600 700 but mm. the the band-aid cost seven bucks and that the article was like the 696 dollar band-aid or something like that and i saw in 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 creating that piece i was interviewing a lot of patients we interviewed like tons and tons of patients to see who we could bring on to the show interviewing uh healthcare professionals two doctors that we interviewed talking about all this and that just started made me realize like and i read this the uh, an incredible article. Um, this is a research paper by the JAMA Journal of American Medicine uh, Association. I think it was like 2018 or 2019. They put it out a study about healthcare spending in America and like how much of it is waste. Mm. So much of healthcare expenditure is waste. Like one thing that hit me really hard was like there's like a hundred billion dollars in American healthcare expenditure that's just on tests that aren't needed. And I was mm. like, oh wait, yeah, I. They wanted me to do a blood work and EKG and an X-ray back at NYU when I went to have this asthma attack. I'm like, something is up here. Like, and I understand that you know Americans are very litigious people. <laughs> like, if, yeah. if if I didn't get a test and like something ended up being problematic, I definitely would have sued the shit out of NYU. Um, but at the on the other side of it, that makes doctors treat patients defensively as opposed to um, I don't know what the exact the opposite term is, but. Uh, yeah, it, it makes doctors over and contribute to the high healthcare expenditure. And all this kind of summed up to being like, this feels not just uh, mm-hmm. happenstance. This has to be some kind of conspiracy where it's like, why else would a Band-Aid cost $7? Like either it's like the best Band-Aid in the world or your supplier's fucking you. <laughs> yeah, you got to yeah. charge the markup or you're just making bank on all like, like $7 for a Band-Aid. A Tylenol pill should not cost $10 just because you got it at a hospital, you know? Mm. And, and like those kind of subtle things make me realize like there's something afoot here. And I remember speaking to, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but when we interviewed him at San B, he had gotten a knee brace at an ortho clinic for $900. The same brace on Amazon was 200 bucks. Mm. And it's like, oh, because a doctor touched this, it's $700 more. You know what I mean? And, and it's like yeah, yeah. at every part of the healthcare system, there's someone making margin. And mm. this margin is what's driving up healthcare costs for everybody. You know, like in directly or direct indirectly, like everything drives up premium costs. Premiums have gone up every year for the last 20 years. Every year for the last 20 years, healthcare insurance premiums have gone up. And that's not because we're getting healthier every year. And this mm. is, it's the opposite. You know, we're getting unhealthier um, and people are taking advantage of us. And that, that's 
to me, it feels like a criminal conspiracy. And now you have private equity involved. Anytime yep. private equity gets involved in something, you know it's bad, right? When has private equity ever entered anything? Oh, these guys <laughs> yeah, yeah. are going to do good for this system. They're going to really shape it up. Um, so then you have this insight. What is then? What does writing mean? Like, how does then this become a thing that you're doing? That's you know, like how much is it written down? How much is it just stuff you're doing on stage? What does it mean for you then to make this into what it becomes? Well, you know, the there's so much fat that I chopped off this bit because it became like uh, a Patriot Act episode. You know what I mean? Like, shout out to Hassan Minaj. It was just like, it became like a full on, you know, 20 minute take on on every aspect of healthcare. And no one wants to sit through me trying to dissect how private equity is an evil entity and how insurance companies work and all and I tried to do that with, you know, the Sam B piece, but obviously no one watches my healthcare take as one giant collective piece. It's yeah, more yeah. like, he hates doctors. And it's like, no, yeah. I don't hate doctors. I have 16 first cousins. Six of them, six of them are physicians. Like I have yeah. a group chat with my doctor cousins right here. Like, like I'm talking shit about healthcare constantly and they're all making fun of me about being in the healthcare system and all this kind of shit. And, 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 and I love my cousins and I think they all do great work. They're all like, the two of them are in pain management, which is notoriously a, a, a not a very strong, like good field. You know, one's a yeah. hyper specialized surgeon, uh, another's an endocrinologist. You know, like I have across the board. One of my cousins actually works for an insurance company. You know, she just joined Blue Cross Blue Shield as a case reviewer. You know, mm. and so like I know physicians across the platform. I know what's going on in the system, and as someone who grew up valuing physicians the way I did, wanting to be one, knowing what healthcare is supposed to be from a doctor's perspective, I feel like doctors have really lost their way and have forgotten what they signed up for in the first place. And I'm not mad at it necessarily. It's just what's the funny take about it for me. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Like you're supposed to be the good people. You're supposed to be on our team. And I, you know, I get so many DMs from doctors very upset. Like you don't know what it's like to be a doctor. And then other doctors are like, man, you, you ride on about this shit. We could be doing a lot of stuff differently, but it's really hard to do because we got to compete with uh, uh, our, our medical school debt. We got, you know, do we take care of patients or do we fight the healthcare admins who mm -hmm. are MD MBAs who have come in with their Harvard MBS, uh, MBA degrees and now just want to slice costs and, and drive revenue up and somehow that makes sense for patients. You know, they, whatever lie they tell themselves, these MD MBAs to to uh, make themselves feel better and, and drive revenue up, you know? And so that's, that was the process. It was like, I have so much fat on this. Um, who can I speak to directly without it sounding like a, a lecture, but mm. and still have it be funny. And if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be punching at somebody, I will punch up at doctors, right? These are, yeah, these yeah. are physicians who make tons of money. Uh, not all of them make tons of money. A lot of them make decent money, but at the end of the day, like, you took a Hippocratic oath and, and that oath says, you know, put patient care first. And I remember I was in DC, October, 2020, I did like an illegal show in Washington, DC. And, uh, this neurologist came to the show and I was high as shit on stage because uh, I wanted to experiment and see what I could do and, and fuck around. I ended up talking to this doctor for like 15 minutes about mm. the healthcare system. And what I told her, and this is how it feels, like you, you can't call it complete care if you're not taking care of a patient's wallet at the same time. Like mm -hmm. 
bankruptcy, healthcare bankruptcy is the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. And that, that all causes stress, that all causes like poor eating and all that trick. It's like this weird, vicious cycle that y'all got going on in the healthcare fields. Like, let's stress these motherfuckers out, give them heart attacks, they'll come to see us, drive their bills up, they'll eat poorly. And here we go. We got this self-fulfilling cycle, you know? So I was going to ask, because I've seen videos where you like will ask people what is the worst medical bill uh-huh. situation they've had, yeah. where you'll ask people who are doctors. So you have such a conversational style. Is that partly because you are a lot of these jokes are built out of like actual conversations you have and you figure out how to like make it translate to people who are not in that room at the time? The short answer, yes. Like I've, I've had conversations. I can uh, I really know where a lot of stuff is going to go. I can kind of see it. Um, but a lot of it also is just genuine curiosity. I remember like the, the, I think in Albany, someone told me that they, they need a kidney transplant or something. It's going to cost like $60,000 or something like that. And I was like, they're just going to let you not need this kidney. And it's, a, you know, like it just becomes so crazy, the conversations that these people have. And, you know, the, the specifics, I forget where I learned that, uh, an average knee replacement costs $25,000. Mm. Um, and that just became uh, a joke for me because it was such a funny visual. Like to have someone yeah. hobbling to doctor's office and the, and the Camry also cost $25,000. And the, the, the joke, it just came out of nowhere. Like a doctor making you suck his dick to get a brand new knee, you know? <laughs> uh, but Well, it's like you're free associating on the idea of knees and you're like, yes. boom. And then it's like, it's all in, you know, exactly. it feels so organic to how the thought process yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, um, But yeah, the conversations I had with asking pe- people about their healthcare bills is, is because I was like, all right, I think if if I'm going to die on this hill of healthcare being fucked up in America, I'm going to need some evidence from people who mm. aren't doctors. I'm going to need some yeah. patients telling me, yeah, I, my my bill was $2 million. You know, I had a, uh, I don't think I got this on tape, or maybe I did, um, but it was in Columbus, Ohio, where a, a, a lawyer got a bill he had broken his back or something. Got a bill for like a million bucks, a million dollars. And he was like, "I got a bill for a million dollars." Luckily, insurance helped out a lot, but a million dollars in a, like a million dollars. <laughs> Imagine, yeah, you know. And then and I'm sure you read those articles while COVID was happening about those people getting bills for two million dollars yeah. for being in the hospital for a, a disease they had no control over, um, uh, and, and the system just be like, "Fuck, you gonna do?" Yeah, and that's it, it's, it's charging their yeah. insurance company, obviously. So the patient's not like, "Oh fuck, I'm I got all two million dollars." But at the end of the day, like insurance company's going to pay some amount of that, and that that cost will get passed on to patients, one yeah. way or the other. It's interesting because I often talk about how um, com- uh, comedians can be like um, on the ground reporters of like how, what what life is like. And in many ways, your act, especially this part, is very literal in that, like, you are telling people stories that you got directly. Yeah. Like, this is not, I didn't make up these numbers. Like, these, these, the numbers you use so clearly seem like these are the numbers that if you check, that's the number that you hurt. Cool. Um, so I want to go through the joke and just talk about writing each part or what you found funny about it and just sort of how you think about structure. And th- it starts with, uh, you say healthcare is a criminal enterprise. It's, you say it multiple times. It's like a Chris Rock. This is the Shout thesis. That's Chris. the point. Yes, of- yes. And Chris obviously was a big influence on you. Chris also hired you to write for the Oscars. 
it was that deliberate you're like i there's a take-home message about this let's hammer it yes that was that was a deliberate choice um if i was gonna usually if i don't have a punchline i'll try to make a point <laughs> and that was the one point i allotted myself in the uh, at least I, I tried to allow myself in the special itself which is that yeah. healthcare is a criminal enterprise because um, i don't think anyone's ever really said that before um and i want to let people know that this is what i would be talking about and here's my um incomplete but not yet done like i i think this will be a through line throughout a lot of my stand-up mm. um uh you know especially this next hour that i'm working on which we can talk about offline is a very personal story about my return to the healthcare system <laughs> mm. um, uh, but yeah it will continue to be a through line um but yeah it, it was a deliberate point writing process wise i was like i had all these pieces and i knew that i wanted to end on um don't hate the player, hate the game somehow. Uh, yeah. And I was like, all right, well, I got to reverse engineer how I can get to this being the funniest point of uh, um, my whole thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, me saying don't hate the player, hate the game is exactly what doctors say when you tell them that healthcare is broken and that they're the part of the problem. Like, hey, man, look, mm. the system's broken. It's not our problem. You know, we're just here trying to get a dollar. And try to help. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. And it's like, oh, okay. So now, now I have my two, I have my callback built in, and this is I reverse engineer like, and and then when you do a, a little joke math, like the further the distance between the callback and the setup, uh, the mm. bigger the applause and the ah, oh, the bigger like the 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 light bulb goes off right. in people's brains. It's like, okay, I'm gonna have to start near the beginning with this kind of initial. Um, uh, setup and I think before that, like I'm not sure if it was before or after exactly the set, but I, I, I definitely say like I know I don't deserve healthcare. I'm very <laughs> cognizant that I'm part of the problem here. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that. That don't like I think doctors and whoever watches that bit like kind of forget that that's also what I'm saying. Like I know I'm part of the problem. You know, so don't hate the play, hate the game. But look, doctors can't be the ones saying this. I'm not. I'm. I didn't go to medical school and take an oath to be. The best person i could be you know what i mean I, i'm here yeah. being a piece of shit to myself like every other american uh and the people who are signed up to take be better than the average american should be doing that yeah you mentioned the the idea of if you can't think of a punchline you don't you try to make a point and something interesting happens sort of the next part of the joke where you go healthcare has this virus known as capitalism and then one person claps and you immediately start talking over them yeah yeah and you know, you've often been like, I'm like, I'm a joke guy. I'm here to tell jokes. This is about jokes. And like, clearly you're very passionate about providing people information about how fucked up the healthcare system is. Yeah. So like, yes, I, you are a joke teller and writer and you're good at, but like, obviously there is more you want to be giving people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, that was again, like my few minutes in the set where I was like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take a slight deviation from the hard jokes and the silly nonsense and try to drill down on what I think is a real problem. And healthcare has this virus known as capitalism is a joke on paper. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a very, like uh, a witty statement, you know, but <laughs> it's not making anyone guffaw, yeah. uh, <laughs> but it's like, Oh, that's cute. You know? <laughs> and I thought it was a, a nice allusion to the fact that COVID and the coronavirus exposed so much wrong with our healthcare system. 
And I, and I didn't even, you know, some of the fat that I trimmed off was the fact that all these, you know, uh, urgent cares and all these places providing free tests were getting paid billions of dollars by the government to do so. You know what I mean? Like, like all that yeah. stuff, like it exposed so much about our healthcare system. And I just thought a cute little nice tie into the virus that we got going on is calling the healthcare system a virus on, on society. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. And then you, you call your finance, your finance friends, which is, I was thinking about like, well, he did work in finance. So he literally has probably finance friends who have heard this joke mm-hmm. and you're doing these jokes in New York where I'm sure so many people are financed the worst possible audience members mm-hmm. are like booing this part is that a reaction to it like in some ways it a lot of your this joke in particular feels like rebuttals to arguments but you don't have to hear the yes first that's exactly thank you very much for articulating that that is almost exactly what it is i just i can just show it to my friends who work in fine like my close my best friends some of my best friends are like billionaire hedge fund finance guys right They're not necessarily billionaires but they work manage, <laughs> i was like oh wow manage billions of dollars and all this kind of yeah. shit you know and so it's like uh, uh we can talk we argue like on text and on over the phone and over drinks and stuff about like the benefits of capitalism and and how they view capitalism and net positive in the world and i was like well if you actually view that if capitalism was actually a positive force in the world the world will not be as fucked up as it is right now you know <laughs> like the evidence is right there i don't know what legal term that is but it's like yeah but it's like it's right there that it's not going well like something is afoot here so you guys have fucked up somehow but it's it's just a very fun way to like stoke people who don't have a microphone, and, and I remember I remember saying that at like a, not an open mic but like the cellar or some shit. And like my friend was there, and I literally like I could see him be like, oh, here we go again, <laughs> like you know, like that that eye roll kind of feeling, and uh, uh, so that's why I kept that in. You know, it's just like like I know one or two people will vibe, but the rest of these like suited up Indian people and white people and black people are gonna be like, oh yeah, here we go. It, it's funny because then the cut the the rebuttal part the next part is also rebuttal which is like you hate all doctors like i have 16 cousins and that and it's funny that that is a laugh line for your audience you just go i have 16 cousins and that audience is like oh i, I know who he is that means a lot of these people are doctors exactly like like it, it's a it's the it's the rebuttal against someone saying i don't know anything about the healthcare system because mm-hmm. i get that a lot you know a lot of people are like you don't know shit a lot of doctors, I can't tell how I many surgeons and people in my DMs constantly, like anytime a healthcare clip of mine goes viral, I'll definitely get messages. You don't know shit. Uh, you're, you, how, how dare you speak about what it is like? And I'm like, oh, right. I am sorry you don't have a close relationship with your family members, but I talk to my cousins all the time. And when we argue about healthcare, it's a real argument. You know, we're going back and forth about healthcare. It's like, okay, tell me what I don't know. And then let me talk to you about what I think is going on. And I think I have uh, almost like this, I don't know what the correct term is, but uh, a very low level of knowledge, which means mm-hmm. I have the curiosity to be like, oh, what's going on? And then the ability to see through what's going on and articulate what is actually the, what's wrong about something, what's right about something. And my cousins, for better or for worse, support me in that end. You know, like, yeah. I, I know if I call my cousins up right now, and they're like, no, he's right. This, uh, the whole system's fucked up. He's wrong about this, this, and this. But as a whole, the system's fucked, but I got to drive a Porsche, you know? Like, like yeah, what, yeah, what are you yeah. going to do? Yeah, it, that's, it's funny, because then you you do talk about the doctors who are like, oh, my hands are tied. And then 
the Tesla, is there, were you thinking about what cars? Are there specific doctors? Yes, are you I like, mean, this is the... Every time, every time, uh, not every time, but maybe 99% of the times that I've pointed out doctors in the crowd, um, and like, Tesla, he's like, and everyone around is like, ah, oh, you got him, he's got a Model 3 or a Model S. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, I can tell because it's both help. It's it's it is cost money, but also seemingly it's helpful. Yes, is it? yes. it's like that idea of a person. Yeah, the doctors just love tech and love seeming cool, and, and like and Teslas are fantastic vehicles. You know, they're they're ugly as shit, but uh, they are very nice cars. Um, and you know, and the when I did the show in where was it, Birmingham, Alabama, there was a dermatologist in the crowd who did not have a Tesla. Hmm. His sister said he got a Lambo. <laughs> I'm like, oh right, yeah, you know all that, all that fantastic uh, pimple popping uh, for, for society is is really returned wonders for you in that zero to sixty mm-hmm. time that you're chasing. You know, it's like I'm not wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, and, and I don't blame the doctors for a lot. Like, I get it. We live in a society where money is very important, but the joke in real life is the contrast between what to me mm. doctors are supposed to be and what we are witnessing happen across the medical field. I'm sure there yeah. are tons of doctors out there who are, who are slaving away, who make like two, 300 grand a year uh, are struggling, so to speak, paying back medical debt and all that kind of stuff. And are just really out to help the patient, these hospitalists and internists who are just doing it the best they can. But there's also doctors out there who, are plastic surgeons in Beverly Hills and drive Ferraris and have TV shows about them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what you're essentially is taking these people that have such high status and then putting them in in the context of people that society does not give status. Actually, it reminds me of the, the TV show The Wire. Did you watch The Wire? I did not. I, this is one of my shows so, I got to catch up on. So I just started watching it, and part of it is just sort of like th- how they equate essentially people in the government and people in, in the police office and uh drug dealers and not necessarily putting them on different footings and then judging morality that way. And, and I bring it up just because like you are, you're, you say don't hate, hate the player, hate the game as being like what doctors are doing are the same thing as a criminal enterprise is doing. And we should treat them hypothetically like criminal enterprises, which doesn't mean you don't understand why criminal enterprises even operate. It's just sort of like, that's a different way of seeing a, you know, not many people stick it to doctors. Like it's not. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a moral lens that I, and, and it's because I, again, like it all goes back to yeah. my first desire to be a doctor. It's like, that is how at least the generation above us, mm. um, my parents and, you know, my, my parents, friends, all that view physicians. That's at least coming from India yeah, and yeah. maybe some other uh, East Asian countries. Like, Doctor was not the guy living in the penthouse in the Dumbo apartment with mm. a Tesla and a BMW X7 and, you know, his three kids that go to private school. The doctor was a guy making 200 grand wearing a men's warehouse suit, uh, you know, working and seeing like case tons and tons. Of, you know, my my mm. two of my uncles who were, were doctors are exactly like that. You know, granted, they did well because they were, you know, early investors in a lot of companies like yeah. you know, just. They just stocked their money away. You never saw any of it. But it was like that. It was like, no, we treat every patient that walks through our door. If they can't afford to pay, we'll figure it out, you know? Uh, and that's how they, that's how they, that's how I was 
raised to believe doctors should operate. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of doctors have uh, deviated from that. And so that moral test that the wire conducts upon uh, its, its characters, that's the same morality test I'm trying to apply to these physicians. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, the Band-Aid joke, the joke part of it, how did you land on Elmo and that off-brand reference? Oh. It, it's, it, it's, uh, I was like, it's it's really interesting because you're like, they're so wide apart and they both really, really work, but it's really, they're both really specific. Oh, I mean, the, the Elmo thing, uh, uh, a friend of mine gave me, the setup I had was, it's never like a fly Band-Aid. It's never like some mm. cool shit. And he's like, it, he said, it's got to be specific. He said, what about Elmo? I was like, that's perfect. Um, and then I think uh, Virgil had just passed away um, uh, right around the time. So Off-White was just in my head. And, and uh, shout out to Virgil and rest in peace to him. Uh, but uh, Off-White was just like a hot New York. Uh, people in New York know what Off-White is. So I was like, it's not an Off-White Band-Aid that says Band-Aid. You know, like that's his signature on a lot of his shoes, a lot of his clothes. So um, I just want to shout him out real quick. Um, and that's how that came to be. It was uh, yeah. uh, the setup being it's never something fly. Like the thought process being, why would it cost seven dollars? Does that Swarovski crystals on it or something? You know, like why? For what does it immediately close the wound? You know, but that wasn't really funny on the iterations that I yeah, tried. Yeah. But then Elmo hit because uh, it's such a perfect visual. And then the the off white, I didn't trust that would hit all the time, but I didn't really care. I was like, I got to do this. Um, yeah. Uh, shout out to Virgil. You know. And it's just the the rhythm of an off white band aid that says band aid. It's just like sounds really nice. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the joke in a short time is sort of like a few different styles of jokes are sort of like rhetorical ways of approaching. Like this part's like you have this exasperation part, then you have the act out part where the the knees, <laughs> and then um, then you have sort of a an extended metaphor where it's, you compare doctors to sort of sex workers. Can you talk about the how you thought about that, building that out, because it really is like a full on, like we're going to do a metaphor and like that, we're going to walk it all out. It's like, this is like this, this is like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I think I started a, a few months before um, I had made a decision to talk shit about doctors, you know, and uh, while I was at Sam B, I think I had scribbled down somewhere like insurance companies are pimps, you know, like that's, mm -hmm. that's really what it is. Um, and if insurance companies are pimps, then doctors are, are the prostitutes. And I think I, I had originally said, like, doctors are hoes. <laughs> that, that, that really did poorly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and also very harsh, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and doctors are prostitutes felt like just a little softer. And I've come to learn recently that prostitutes is no longer an accepted. To, I don't know if that's a, 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 a but sex workers just doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, but yeah, especially it seems like it, we are transitioning to the term sex workers, and now as more people know to use it, it'll have a different ring to it. But it did seem like it makes sense, at least at that point. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Maybe I was maybe I aged myself a little bit, I haven't kept up on the lingo, but uh, then it was very simple like, okay, what do doctors and prostitutes have in common? You know, they they treat your balls <laughs> one way or the other, uh, they wear uh, uh, what's it called. A very identifiable clothing, and uh, if you can't pay, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, but you know, the point I wanted to get to was doctors very rarely tell you how much things cost. You know, uh, for better or for worse. I mean, for Trump was obviously a terrible president, but one thing he did try to get through was 
pricing transparency at hospitals, which hospitals mm. fought and still to this day have not uh, abided by. And they, they'll accept fines or, and it's really murky, like how much they have to do and all that. But hospitals uh, very rarely publish how much stuff is going to cost. And doctors, I don't know about you, but if I was going to be selling something, I would know exactly how much it costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, and doctors like, well, our, our concern is not how much it costs because uh, the cost can impact the care. Uh, we don't have the time to really care about it. Okay, sure. You Maybe you don't need to know exactly how much like your, your orchiectomy is going to cost or whatever it is. But you should be kind of aware that the stitches are going to cost this much money and, and, and the band-aids are going to cost this. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, and so uh, that that analogy, what I wanted to get to was that transparency thing and how little doctors uh, know about it, how much they're going to cost. You know, it's never. Uh, I never fr- went to a uh, a sex worker before, but I imagine they are pretty upfront about. Yeah, yeah, this is <laughs> this is what it's going to be, um, and then if you don't have the money, there's going to be a knock on your door with a crowbar. Um, and someone's walking out limping and it's not going to be the sex worker, you know? Well, I mean, it's so interesting because essentially what you do is first you go like, they're like this, they're like sex workers. But then you realize after you're like, no, sex workers are more transparent. Yep. There's more integrity. You know, they're a criminal enterprise in so much as how they're classified. And that is the difference. It's like, that is what, that is the sort of comedic disconnect of which is like doctors are treated as like the bastions of society. Right. And yet they're like acting like, worse than what we think of as criminal exactly if prostitutes operated the way doctors did i don't think a lot of people a lot of people would have a lot of problems with seeing a prostitute you know, <laughs> you know, there'd be a lot more people like oh i can't do that i don't know what's gonna cost me you know yeah yeah whereas whereas the doc and, and you know the needs can be the same i don't know if you ever really needed to go to <laughs> but but so like all that all that being said it's like that was that thank you for recognizing that that was the objective of the yeah of the bit, which was, look, guys, like, just tell us how much something's going to cost. Don't make me get a bill three weeks later. Uh, get, what? That that X-ray was two thousand dollars. I didn't even you. I didn't even need it. Two G's, man. Yeah. And now we got to pay. Or Blue Cross Blue Shield is going to be coming knocking at my door. Like, hey, here's a pimp slap for you. We're going to going to take your computer. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um. So then you do again, which it must be a rebuttal to like for people like. People are saying you're just jealous. And then you're like, it's not that I'm jealous. I'm like, it, it, you you sort of, this is how unjealous I am of you. Like, I think this little of you, like, and then you take to the Caribbean reference. Yeah, yeah, but that was, that was, again, like, uh, a lot of my, that healthcare bit is just rebuttals to wild ass DMs that I've received. And I've definitely, I definitely cut out some, there was some fat there too. Well, not fat, just stuff that I didn't really, I don't want to take an angle on like, um, uh, uh, the coolness of doctors you know mm-hmm. what i mean like you know the you know the doctors a are very smart people but they're not the smartest people on the planet constantly you yeah. know what i mean like and i i did a bit later on that i cut from this one that i put out like i put, also put a mixtape out called it's dark and patel is hot and in that that semi-special i uh i just do all the bits that i didn't that i just cut from here and one of them being like uh every doctor knows at least one doctor were like yo how the fuck did this guy become a doctor you know what i mean <laughs> like i could have easily been that idiot you know so don't talk to me about i'm not smart enough to be a doctor like you don't have to be a brainiac to be a doctor and more importantly like you just jealous you're not like cool enough to be a doctor like first of all 
I make just as much money as some physicians, um, and I don't do anything all day. <laughs> you know, my life is great. You know, I was the first yeah. Indian to ever write on SNM. Like, you know, like I'm sure, like you're doing great God's work, but I've contributed to the culture. You know, yeah. like, uh, and so don't talk to me about jealousy and stuff. There's not. Why would I be jealous? Uh, I, I am jealous of the fact that you get to save lives, like, and, and that yeah. you get to play that god kind of role and I, I obviously will never know what it's like to to have someone be like man you literally saved my life but i do know what it's like to have someone come up to me after the show and be like thank you i i really need i i have a tough you know four years three years but I, and this is the first time i've laughed in that time and like i i know what that feeling is mm. and so that's not obviously the same but it is similar um yeah. and so there's no jealousy involved at all it's more like don't talk shit to me. I know who I'm talking to when we're when we're talking. Like we're, we're yeah. the same people. The fork in the road is junior year at NYU. I got C plus and said fuck it. Some people got C plus and said no, I'm gonna keep going. And then they went to the yeah. Caribbean or they went to some other med school and they became doctors. Yeah, like that's literally that's it. Otherwise, yeah, exactly the same. Yeah, that joke is saying I'm not jealous. I know. I know what this is. Yes. Like I, you can't talk down to me. Like I am aware of the situation. Yes. It also then sets up the part about med school which is again like a different type of structure it's like you're like this is my ridiculous solution to this problem mm -hmm. which reminded me of uh chris rock's uh bullets should cost a thousand dollars or whatever five thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> we have five there'll be no more innocent five of course yeah. uh uh the American do you feel like oh i should i like and now the part of the argument where i have to like offer some sort of idea yes. even if it's like a fake idea that was that was i knew i had to conclude with something, uh, uh, at least that part of the bit, uh, before going yeah. into the the, help, the asthma attack story, I knew I had to conclude with some kind of solution. And that solution being, because doctors, may, a lot of their contention is like, med school costs a lot of money. Um, and that's why we have to make money to, to recoup this. And, and that was another one of those things where it's like, well, I could unpack this whole conspiracy, which is the med school uh, medical residency program, licensing, mm -hmm. all this kind of shit. You know, in the UK, you can go straight to medical school. You don't need to go to college. I could unpack all that. Or I could just be like, well, okay, well, if your main contention is med school costs a lot of money, then why don't we just make it free for everybody? And then let's yeah. see if you actually want to, if you care about people or if you're actually about it for the money. And mm -hmm. it turns out that was not a good solution for the doctors in the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll be right back with more Namesh Patel. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you'd learn that that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. 
I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. We're back with Namesh Patel. So the special is called Thank You China, yes, which is referring to the influence of TikTok has in building an audience for you. And and parts of this joke have been put on TikTok. And I want to talk about all of that for a bit because it is fascinating how this ri- your rise on this platform has been incredible. Um, so you joined TikTok in May 2020. Besides, obviously, the sort of uncertainty as a live performer two months into COVID, how are you thinking about your career and sort of where it was headed at that point? Like the opportunities you were getting or not getting? Yeah. I you mean, know, what was forward? That means yeah. so, so it was March 2020 when everything shut down was like a, a wild time, obviously, for everybody. And for, for a live performer, I was like, all right, well, I got to figure out this unemployment form. Uh, <laughs> how do I, uh, all right, what am I going to do? And, um, you know, my first special jokes for quarantine, I, I, I think I put, I don't remember exactly when I put it up, but um, it started take, it started doing well at the beginning mm-hmm. of quarantine. And I realized, oh, people are just online right now. Mm-hmm. Everyone's looking for content online, like everyone's stuck at home doing stuff. And um, TikTok was still, I don't know if it's, if it was in its infancy, but as, uh, for, mm-hmm. as I knew it was still like, yeah. what the fuck is TikTok? And my wife uh, works in social media in, in the influencer space. And she was the first person like, you should get on TikTok and just put yourself on TikTok. And uh, I, was, I didn't get the platform. And so my first video yeah. was me doing a, a very goofy cover of a Kanye, uh, that Jesus is Lord song, a G- Jesus on board, <laughs> which, is, which is just, I think still remains, if I made it a full song, would be fantastic. Sure, um, yeah. And then uh, it didn't really do anything. I was like, okay, is this what it's for? And she was like, no, you should just put stand-up stuff out. And I, I didn't had, I didn't listen. Um, and then you know, my other friend, Sahib Singh, who was uh, pretty big on TikTok, it's, that's like uh, a character that's popped off on there. Great stand-up as well. But uh, he was like, you should put yourself on TikTok. I think you'll do well. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and obviously, you know, uh, the the adage of man listens to wife, no, <laughs> man listens to friend, yes. And, that, you know, like I should listen to my wife in the first place. But yeah, um, uh, uh, I started putting, I had my jokes for quarantine hour chopped up by my, my editor, Ify Case at the time. And he helped me put like, you know, frame it so I could put it on TikTok. And like the first clip that I put up that was stand up, I think it was like an Indian joke about Indian cops. And it did like crazy numbers, like three, four hundred thousand views. Like what? <laughs> and at the time, TikTok was not banned in India, and mm. so it was really doing well. And like I, I started feeding the algorithm, just putting clips up daily. And lucky for me, you know, having been at the seller at that time for like four years already, and for the comedy seller, they record all the clips and send yeah, them yeah, to yeah. comedians if they want them. And so I had this whole catalog of clips that I could just chop up and put out. And so my editor chopped all this stuff out. I started putting stuff out. And I did that for, I'm still doing it, but for most of uh, uh, quarantine. 
and and you know it's doing seeing traction and i was like slowly building an audience and i was seeing oh my numbers went up to oh forty thousand. oh wow that's, that's the most followers i have on any platform let me just keep going and then you know i got a i got a writing job with lily singh in i think i want to say november of 2020 or something like that uh, i think that was the time um and so like i was you know i had the bandwidth to like I could afford to pay an editor to just keep mm. chopping stuff up because I was doing it all myself before. And then the editor like sent me stuff constantly. I started putting stuff up constantly. That Lily Singh job ended in, uh, I think, March of 2021. And I had all these, uh, I had one date booked in Houston. Um, uh, uh, I think it was like April 2021. That was supposed to happen in 2020, but obviously got canceled. Yeah, yeah. I was like, all right, well, let me see if I can't use this platform to drive tickets to this show. And so I, you know, wrote some copy on the on the video. And lo and behold, the show that I had booked was a 70 person show, like a 70 seater. Hmm. We went from one 70 seater to uh, four 200 seat shows. So I sold 800 tickets in Houston off of TikTok a month out. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> my manager was like all right let's get on this let's see what else <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's yeah. see what else we can book you know um I, I sold out the addison improv the dallas improv like 300 people on a wednesday during ramadan you know and i was like oh shit like if i can do that like this is crazy my manager reg tigerman uh reached out to my now agent um i think actually i think tj uh mark walter reached out to my manager like i like i see what nemesh is doing i want to be involved like you know, he also, I'm not sure if he still does, but he is, uh, I think he is Andrew Schultz's agent. And Schultz mm. had done something very similar with IG and uh, and YouTube. And so he saw what I was doing on TikTok and was like, I got to, I, I know where this can go. Let's let's make this happen. And so our, our three powers combined, uh, I started utilizing TikTok, crazy driving tickets. And uh, my healthcare bits, uh, I put up very early versions of them because, yeah. again, like I've been working on that for a very long time. And those clips on TikTok did like phenomenally well. Like they were some of my biggest. I pulled them because I wanted to make sure the special mm. ones got their their due. But the early ones, like the the ones where it wasn't fully worked out, like I hadn't had all the closing jokes. All that stuff, they did like some of my biggest numbers to date, like six, 700,000 views, which to me back then was like a tremendous, I still is a tremendous number. Yeah. Um, but then when I had like, you know, a hundred thousand followers as opposed to a million, like it was insane to do that. Yeah. And I was like, okay, these bits are apolitical, but political at the same time. Mm. Everyone can relate to this. Everyone in America knows healthcare is fucked up, you know? And, and and I think those clips resonated. I was like, I got to make this, you know, I started out in jokes for quarantine because like I yeah. very early versions of that in um, that, you know, that first special I kind of put out. And, you know, I hired a team last September to like do all the, the tedious uploading execution of the plan, and all that kind of stuff. But it's worked out, you know, like I just sold out the Wilbur last weekend. So <laughs> I feel pretty good about where things are going. Did you ever like at, March 2020, where you're like, oh, like, I'll be a theater act real soon. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know, or were you like, and and to, and like, I want to be clear, like, when I started covering comedy 10, 12 years ago, there, there were like four theater acts. It was just like the most, the biggest comedians. 
And so it's not like no shame to not be a theater act, but I assume like 10 years in, you're not like, you're like, all right, I'll be like a solid working comedian. I'll work in TV. And then what is it like to then be like, oh, I'm at this tier. You know, yesterday I was running into the, the Chelsea Music Hall to do um, the co-host suite with Seth Herzog. And uh, uh, as I'm walking in, like I, I, there was a line. I was like, I'm going to just cut all these people because I'm on the show. And then I, uh, and I changed my mind. I was like, nah, I'll just wait. It's only like 10 people on the line. I'm wait in the back of the line. And then the bouncer told me, just, hey, man, just slow down. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't really done that and, and been become like I'm not cognizant of what is happening mm-hmm. in the moment. Like I, it takes me a second. Like, oh, yeah, like. It was after Wilbur that my, you know, my wife, my, and our friends were sitting having a drink. Like, God, I just sold out the goddamn Wilbur Theater. I, and I just come from selling out three shows at Talia Hall. You know, I got Town Hall coming up. I got Warner Theater coming up. March 2020, you know, I remember having this conversation with Bobby Kelly, like, you know, right going right into pandemic. Like, I felt like I had such momentum just mm. in my act, not necessarily mm. from a being known as a, yeah, median, yeah. but just in my act, like I really liked what I was doing on stage. I liked who I was becoming. Like I was really free and just saying whatever I wanted, and, and, and being funny about it. And then pandemic came, I'm like fuck, what am I gonna do now? How am I gonna get my shit out there? And then I took a a, a, a page from Schultz's book and just I was like, oh yeah, I got all this material. Some yeah. they gotta see it. Like uh, let me just put it out. I don't know. There's no reason to be precious with it anymore. We might die. This world might end. Uh, uh, let me put all this shit out. And, and then March, 2021, I only had one date on my calendar, that Houston date by May, 2021, I was booked like for the year, you know, it was very clear that like what my trajectory is, I'm just going to be doing. And even if I stayed only doing clubs the way I did all last year, and I'm still doing a lot of clubs this year, I made it as a comic, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm selling out these shows. I'm having a great time. These are my fans. It's not like yeah. the, the venue sent out an email like, hey, this guy's coming to town. These are my fans that I built in, in Denver and Chicago and San Francisco and all these places I never thought I wouldn't have a fan base, you know? Uh, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, you know, up till date, to, to date, like uh, Phoenix is the most I've ever done in a club. You know, I think mm-hmm. I sold like 580 seats, like on a, on a Thursday. Like I was like, what the fuck? What is happening? You know, so it hits you like that. And I'm like, I, I always got to take a beat to be like, man, this is crazy. I got to appreciate what this is. I always knew when I started that the dream was to be doing these big ass venues. Yeah. But until you do it, until you do them, you're not like, oh, I'm actually doing this. It's crazy. Do you have any sense or any theories about why you or these videos have connected how they did? You know, like a lot of other comedians are on it, but also like television stand-up specials never like got people this type of things as they did were these these tiktok clips or for some people instagram reels has been able to do it do you have any being Uh, in it have you have any theories about what it is i think the the, a you know i do not discount the incredible amount of luck i've had um Mm -hmm. in being early uh and in in semi listening to my wife and and, and (laughs) um the the amount of luck is is uh um I would say 90% of this, you know, um, yeah. but I also think I, I hate tooting my own horn, but I think my standup is different enough where, um, it's not like what a lot of other people have seen or done. Um, and I think for whatever those two things combined, 
And, and on top of that, the more recent stuff I put up is all just stuff that happens fan engagement. You know, it's just like people in the crowd, like I happen to say something crazy and, and I'm good off the cuff and I, I like to have fun. And I think people will come to a show wanting that and expecting that. And, and to a certain extent, mm. I give that to them. But then I'm very proud of the fact that I have a full act. Like I, yeah, yeah. I can I be in the pocket and be doing my act and I can step out and talk to somebody, address them, so shit, and come back. And that's just from being a vet, from doing, I'm not a vet vet, you know, but I've been doing it for 13 years. So I've seen yeah. a lot of situations where I can come out of something tell someone to shut up or engage with somebody, have a great time, come back into the set and still have a good time. And so I think those two things combined, like more and more on this leg of the tour. So from April 21 to December 21, I was doing Thank You China, like that building, that hour. Yeah. Out. Uh, and then once it was done, I was like, all right, my hands are clean. Like, I don't want to do any of this ever again. Um, but then from January uh, uh through April, I still had like 30 shows to do, you know what I mean? 30 <laughs> days. And I was like, fuck am I going to talk about? And then, so for the first month or so, I was really like, just fl- like on stage, just with notepad, like fucking around, doing shit, like going in and out of Thank You China, coming back out, doing crowd work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then February, um, beginning of February, I had this uh, uh, health scare um, and, and that God gifted me another hour, basically. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, God. This will not be the name of the uh, uh, next hour. Thank you, God. Um, but uh, uh, all that to say, like, on this tour that I'm doing now that started, you know, uh, in April kind of till you know, I'll do until probably February next year is when I'm seeing a lot more people being like, Yo, oh, how'd you? I ask every show. I try to make sure mm-hmm. I ask, like, who's here from TikTok? Who's here from IG? Who's here from YouTube? who's here because your friend dragged him and more and more it's like word of mouth uh, yeah, yeah. which is like a cool kind of a very fun tipping point for me to see like oh my friend saw you in atlanta that's what they told us we got to come to the show my friend saw you in san francisco we, we got to come to the show i'm like that's what i want and that's what i think yeah. what any comedian wants and uh i'm just gonna keep trying building on that you know i i think the 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 mixtape you released before the special, I think you start by asking if, if this is anyone's first stand-up show before, yeah. and a bunch of people will say it is. Yeah. And I assume that's because that is happening. What what does it mean? It's it's sort of like, how do you then do material for people who sort of don't know the rules? And and sort of how do you... What does it mean to sort of embrace the, the sort of power of being like, <laughs> if this is good, I will make a person who loves comedy. Yeah. Like, you know, and I'm, I'm, set, I'm creating in them a sort of understanding of like what a comedy comedy can be like how do you think about that like that is that I, is a very new experience for comedians to regularly tour to people yeah like that. it's uh it's i also ask that most every show like whose first show ever is this like not just like any comedy thing but just like just to go out and go to see a stand-up comedian for the first time ever like whose first show is and a lot of people like oh this is our first time obviously i joke about like oh what if i ruined comedy for you but you know that doesn't that doesn't tend to happen but uh it it is a fun responsibility and a very humbling thing to hear and i also make sure i ask it so that the club knows hey man that email list is growing because of me you didn't yeah yeah. (laughs) i did that for you guys so next time when i come back i want i want some more of that door uh, but it's like a fun thing to be people's first live stand-up comedian that they've ever seen. My first comedian I ever saw live, I had seen, I think, two or three specials before I ever saw live comedy. It was 
Dana Carvey's first special back in like mm. I forget what it was. He did chopping broccoli. That yeah, one. yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, one that was on Comedy Central all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, uh, that one. Uh, Bigger and Blacker, Chris Rock, and then yeah. uh, Russell Peters one that was on YouTube. That was like I think mm. the three that stick out of my brain is the comedy specials I had seen. But the first live comedian I ever saw, 2004 NYU, when I was walking down the street at the cellar getting pizza after uh, studying for finals. I get barked into the comedy cellar because the cellar was not what it was then. Yeah, it was yeah, still yeah. A, a legendary place, but it was not sold out every night. Yeah, yeah. Bouncer barks me in. I walk in. Chappelle's on stage. The first comedian I ever saw live was Dave Chappelle. You know what I mean? And he made fun of me while I walked in because I had a backpack on. You know, it's like your skin's yeah. a little too olive. I'm going to check your bag. And, and, <laughs> and, and it, was the per- it was perfectly timed. You yeah. know, like, but that was the first comedian I ever saw. And now I'm the first comedian someone like some other, you know, impressionable 20 year olds ever going to see. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. And the demo that comes out is what blows me the way the most. You know, it's like I'll have 18 year olds that bring their parents and then 50 year olds that bring their 20 year olds. You know, like Mm -hmm. my Stress Factory show, the mixtape show, there's a 68 year old uh, retired Microsoft executive who's there with her uh, 25 year old opera singer daughter. And I'm like, who brought who? And Cynthia, the 68-year-old woman, is like, yeah. oh, I brought Olivia. I was like, that's fucking nuts. You know, like that blows my mind. And there's like 20-year-old yeah. Indian kids and 80-year-old white women. It's it, it's it's insane. Do you have to do any like hand-holding? Like, do you ever find yourself in situations where you're like, hey, don't talk? Like, like they're, or do you feel like for the most part they they pick up on it quickly no enough. i think I, I don't have to do a lot of hand holding one of my one of my biggest bits like uh that i that went i think the first time i put it up went kind of viral was me uh talking to some heckler at the at the cellar and i, I told her i was like look anything i ask you your answer yeah. doesn't matter <laughs> it's just a pivot point for whatever i want to talk about like sorry if you think this this i'm just good and making it seem like a conversation, but we're, and we're having a conversation, but we're not really mm-hmm. having. I know where to go and all that kind of stuff. And I try to do some version of that at the shows, uh, just so people know the tone. Uh, but I also uh, uh, will handhold if I need to. But it's more like, yeah. look, like I'm, I have, I start, you know, probably like five, ten minutes in, maybe no, you maybe a little earlier than that, with some fairly dark stuff and some yeah. fairly like touchy stuff. And I was like, look, this is what comedy is to me. These are my jokes. Yeah. Like, if you're not okay with that, hey, there's no refunds. But uh, trust me, you'll have a good time. Like, this, I'm not here to hurt your feelings or anything like that. We're just going to have a good time. If your feelings are hurt, again, you know, I already have your money. So <laughs> just just enjoy it and have a good time. And and I think, like, as a, if I'm an audience member seeing comedy for the first time, I think that's a good impression to have. Of like, oh, yeah, I'm just here to have fun, like. Mm. I'm, this comedian might say something that annoys me or whatever, but at the end of the day, I'm walking out of here um, uh, 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 20, 20, 30 hours lighter, but you know, I, I feel that much more yeah. full of mirth. Um, <laughs> and, and I love seeing like 20 year olds for the first time, first comedy show ever, because I can be like, hey guys, look, uh, you guys are real chatty. Uh, uh, that's not how this shit goes. Just keep it down. Uh, I know you're having fun. Uh, we'll, we'll get through this together, you know? Yeah, it's funny that it reminds me of a, there was a, I think it was a comment on a YouTube video or, where someone was like, the the person that has the most fun at a Nimesh Patel show is Nimesh Patel. <laughs> and people love it probably out of how you laugh at your own yes. jokes. But, you know, how much, it, I'm sure you, 
you care about the audience and you clearly want to have some sort of communal experience mm-hmm. but like you know what is it like what's the point of like why is it important that you're having fun how important is the audience to you I, I will never i will i won't lie and say fuck the audience i love the audience i'm there for them as much as they are for me but a lot of the jokes uh uh i just need to say because they're funny to me mm-hmm. uh, it's just like that and, and people think oh he's faking his laugh and all that kind of stuff and some of it is i don't say fake but it is conditioned in the sense that yeah. i've told that joke and i've laughed at that joke so many times that it just like kind of happens naturally now that i'm just like oh i said this let me laugh at it um and there's still a few jokes that like i'm laughing because the audience is laughing like i'm like i'm like i cannot believe i got to say this to this crowd and that they are laughing at this ridiculous thing that i just said mm-hmm. uh uh but it, it is true you know i i will have fun I, like there's very few shows that I don't have fun. I might be like under wet, some heavy might be on my brain or whatever. But for the most part, I'm up there having a good time. That is like my meditation. You know, yeah. like I'm never I'm never more focused than when I am on on stage. And like uh, that is my hour hour and a half of just being like, this is my world right now. You're all just part participating, and thank you so much mm-hmm. for being here. I hope you can get a little look into how I view the world and stuff. You know, you mentioned in earlier in the interview about. You know, you you'll put this joke on TikTok or something, and people will be like, "How dare you? you they'll, they'll be in your DMs about it." I, you know, I I've talked to a lot of comedians about, especially young comedians, about if they think they should do it. And I, I was wondering, you know, what do you feel about you know the fact that you are removing the context yourself from these jokes? Like, yes, if that person watched the full set, they'll be like, "Got it." But you are you're allowing your act to be removed from the context and be sort of put in this sort of void yeah how do you feel about that i i can see the pros and cons there's uh i think my most uh recent clip uh, that received a lot of uh angry comments and vitriol whatever was uh me saying um uh all that being said will smith is a bitch ass and alopecia is barely a real disease like Mm -hmm. that out of context is uh wild like a wild uh, people like where's the joke i'm like well yeah if you were at the show you would understand because it's 45 minutes of build-up before what i say yeah, 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 yeah. um uh, but that that's just a that's just a math calculation of of people you know, oh that's hilarious and people agreeing with that statement on its own versus yeah. people being upset that i said that and and i i will not hesitate to say that I feel a little bit like Rupert Murdoch sometimes. Like I know how shit's gonna go. Like I'm just like, mm-hmm. all right, you know, you know, dance, people. You know, like we're playing a game right here. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm trying not, I'm trying hard not to be evil about it, and trying hard not to uh, manipulate people. The only manipulation I'm trying to do is trying to be like, just come see me at the show. Yeah, yeah. Like that's all I want. Like you will leave most, most certainly a satisfied customer if you come see the show that i've got going on right now again like i think the one of the flaws of my approach on tiktok thus far has been and for again this is like i'm not saying it's necessarily a negative thing it's just like uh a function of what's played out is that a lot of my stand-up that's out on tiktok right now is very different than what mm. I'm talking about on stage. It's, you know, a sea change. It's a world of difference. Like, yeah. I think some people come expecting crowd work or like social and political and all this kind of stuff. And I have 
moments of that currently. And if I hadn't been gifted this thing from God, uh, I still would be talking about that stuff. But I can't right now because what yeah. what has transpired, like I got to be talking. This is a hyper personal story. It's uh has a little bit of healthcare in it, but not in the same. Not it's not a antagonistic take. The last one, way last one was was it's more. Oh, this is how I'm in the system, and this is this is what's happened to me. And it's a hyper personal story um, uh, that people love. I, I get a lot of comments like, "Man, that was incredible!" Like, thank I've never seen stand up like that before. Like, uh, that was a, what a storyteller. Like, thank you so much. And it's a very it's a deviation from what I've done in the past, yeah. but it's still true to my. I'll poke fun at you, and I'm having good. I'm having a good mm. time. Like, laugh along, or, or it don't matter if you don't, because I'm I'm feeling fine. Um, I truly will not ask you uh, questions to relitigate the whole Columbia situation. It's just so funny to have the sort of first way you broke out to a lot of people is this like things with young people. And then now you pl- blow up on this platform yeah. as like the funny. place where young people hang out. Do you feel like this, these sort of like two extremes have given you insights into young people? Like, I feel like so many, and especially comedians are like, these young people are terrifying and whatever they're, you know, like, what do you feel like you um, have learned? Yeah, I think, I, I, I don't think I've learned anything about young people. I think it's just reaffirmed my uh, belief in uh, that the youth are a fickle group, mm-hmm. um, that we aren't necessarily, like, you know, that they don't necessarily know what's going on and, and how they quick they are to snap to judgment, whatever is remains consistent, you know? Yeah. Um, Columbia for what it was. When I look back at that incident, I no longer think about the behavior of those students or, or, you know, the, the organization that kicked me off or anything like that. I just think about, man, I could have been a lot funnier in my reaction, <laughs> you know? And, and had I not been, doing how i was doing like i i give myself like a c c plus on the on the show itself like if i had been just fucking killing the organization would never had the the gumption to come up on stage or the opportunity to come on stage had i just been fucking murdering and that's all i think about now i don't i don't pay any attention to to the the 20 year old minds that did what they did because now i'm seeing at the shows i'm seeing 20 year olds come out and they're having a good time and they're having fun and they want to laugh they want to feel like that and the people that uh uh, don't appreciate what I put on TikTok. They won't come to the show. Yeah, that's fine by me. But I also don't want to misconstrue the TikTok audience as just young people. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. is. It is literally every age group. You, you know, in this early in the special, very oddly early for the subject matter, you talk about death really early in the special, which is not usually a, an opening part. Mm-hmm. And you talk about Kevin Barnett. Um, Shout out Bird Luger. It, yeah, it made me think about the shows the Lucas Brothers did right after he passed. Mm-hmm. They they were just going to do their own shows, and he passed away, and they were like, let's turn it into sort of a tribute. Yeah. And they're incredible. The The show I went to was an incredible, it was one of the most amazing comedy experiences. the first experience. one or the second one? I went to the first one. That was fantastic. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've heard the second one was a different experience. Second, second one was wild. Second one was, uh, I think Hannibal said it best. You know, he did the second one, and he went up and was like, man, now we got to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was, it was, it was, the second was different too. I was also, I remember I was on stage a bit drunk and, uh, someone fainted and, uh, uh, and I just chalked it up to whenever, if Kevin was in the room, it was a, it was a a good chance. It was a 50, 50 chance that I will bomb. And it was just like something that I, Kevin and I just related to so much, like, cause we, you know, did billions of shows at Matchless, like, uh, uh, 
if I was if I was in the room, Kevin might bomb, and if Kevin's in the room, I might bomb. And it was one of those. It definitely the first show I did great. The second show I remember just being like trying to do the shit, same shit on the first show, and it was <laughs> not the same at all. Like the energy wasn't there. Like I was like a, a Jameson or two in. Someone fainted. It was just it was awful. But um, yeah, I, yeah, that's I. But like everyone that I've heard talk about it felt like both Kevin Passing and that show was magic. affected, impacted sort of how they approach their career and, and yeah. their life as a comedian. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned from that yeah, or I mean, how Kevin, you process it? Kevin changed my life uh, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and his death, unfortunately, impacted me. Unfortunately, unfortunately, to this day, I still, you know, I pray for that man every day. But like the 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 way people viewed him in passing i had never articulated about how i had viewed him while he was alive which is that mm. fearless always went for what made him laugh never had problems just you know was full of love and and was exuberant about it and it was you know driven by his mentality that you know we are all gonna die like and i, I listened that that let's go crazy by Prince. Like constantly, you know, it's like, I can, I can hear Kevin saying it the way mm. Prince says it in that, you know, we all going to, you know, like I could like, like, why are we so angry and upset and about how we approach life? And, and I don't want to sound like I wasn't angry after Kevin died. After Kevin died, I was, I was fucked up for a long time. Um, but, uh, uh, it took, it took me almost dying like six, seven months later when I blacked out on a bicycle. Hmm. Um, was it sometime later? Like, I don't know how much longer, but I was been drinking a lot and not being very cognizant of what alcohol was doing to me that took his death to almost experience death myself to like, finally be like, man, I'm, I, I got a lot of issues. I got to work out and, uh, I got approach life the way Kevin did and, and try to be as much like, Kev as I can be in the way I conduct myself and, and just carry myself from a, a happiness perspective. And I'm not sure if he was uh, fully happy or not, um, but uh, from my perspective, he was and he carried himself as such. And uh, that was a huge impact. And I, I would have been remiss to not bring that up. You know, it was like mm -hmm. a, if the, the way I we're going to talk about structure, the way I structured the special, um, if you listen, if you watch it closely, is as a feature. It's a mm. feature film, right? Like I have my cold open. This is establishing who I am, where I'm at as a comedian. I'm popping because of TikTok. Uh, what's happening in America, Asian hatred and all this kind of shit. Uh, uh, the coronavirus is still kind of going on. That's, that's me establishing myself as a human being. That's who I am as a comedian. I make jokes about whatever I feel like joking about. Inciting incident, death, mm. me almost dying. Kevin dying like this is what's been on my brain like and these are the trials and tribulations I've gone through like in Hinduism what happens when you die is that you you are if you're if you reach perfection if you reach Nirvana if you reach Brahma you're you get to go back and look back at your entire life and see every life you've ever lived hmm. and so I kind of framed it from that uh, I died Kev died like I'm thinking about death like how am I gonna look at my life and like what's impacted this and like drinking was at the top of my brain Hinduism is at the top of my brain, medicine is at the top of my brain, and my parents are at the top of my brain. And so I was like, okay, well, I got to weave this, this such that it follows, like, here's my exciting incident, my trials and tribulations. I, I reach this point of no return. I achieved something. 
mm. uh, become a doctor or become a comedian rather. And then, and now it's like the, uh, and then you hope I've kind of changed and I'm, I'm thinking about life, trying to be a better person. Rug pull. No, I'm the same person. I'm gonna do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's, that's the only non feature kind of thing, but I, uh, uh, I've matured yeah. a bit as a human being. Um, and, and a lot of that, um, a huge portion of that is is because of Kevin's death. You know, like his birthday's coming up in about a week or so. And I think about him. You know, Jack Knight just passed away, and, and it's like I didn't know Jack well at all, but I knew well enough to know that he was loved and, and and held in the same regard as Kev as like someone who brought the happiness to everyone around him. And uh, uh, I just been thinking about that, and like you know, it's heavy in my brain. Uh, but yeah, that's yeah. I would I would have been. Uh, sad if i not uh, and i was debating whether or not i wanted to cut the kevin stuff or not um because like uh, uh people don't know him the, the bit doesn't do as well as it should but to me it's like fuck it i, I got it this is my guy so yeah um do you think this special is special <laughs> i think uh, yes i think as a piece of writing i think it's one of the best written specials out bar none in a very long time um just from what i just said structurally from yeah what i hope to achieve there's a billion easter eggs um hidden within um little callbacks little tie-ins uh, uh from a performance perspective i watch him and and you know i, I don't want to give an excuse for it but you know I, I the special i taped it four days after my grandfather passed away mm. and my grandfather passed away december 8th 2021 and uh uh december 12th i had lined up doing a special and i remember thinking on like the the 11th like i was so short and curt with people like i was just mm. mean and, and that's not who i am and, and and it was only after i did the um it's dark and patel is hot like once that like because i had december 12th was special taping yeah it's dark and patel is hot was taped on december 16th and 18th at stress mm. factory it was on december 21st that Monday when I came back to my apartment and everything was done, no more tour dates. I was just free until like January something. I took a bunch of shrooms and I just, I cried for like an hour and a half. Like, cause I hadn't, I hadn't really cried about mm. my grandpa dying. And it was like the first release I had, I had had from like work and all that kind of stuff. All that to say, like I watched the special and I'm like, I can see my flaws and my, my, uh, tension that's that as a performer that's existing within that special um and you know pam my publicist is gonna be like don't shit talk your own special i'm <laughs> like i'm not shit talking it i'm just viewing it very candidly yeah. as someone who knows like what um a specialism what it can be uh as a again like as a piece of writing impeccable like i i i can't i, I will challenge anybody like i'm sure there's some words and some fat and some better word choice i can make and all that kind of stuff but as a joke piece as something that's structured yeah. i think it's damn near flawless um from performance perspective i definitely have seen i've watched the tape as kobe would say and i know what moves i got to make for the next one i know how to uh what angles i got to cut and and all that kind of stuff and i'm ready and uh happy to uh make that next leap <laughs> So now it's time for the final segment of the show. It's uh, it's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy podcast, I call it the laughing round. Thanks. Um, <laughs> do, do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke or a dad joke? My favorite 
uh, street joke is a red fox joke. Um, mm. It's uh, two best friends going to the woods. Uh, one of them gets uh, bit on the tip of his dick by a snake. One of the best friends go, runs back to the doctor. Doctor, what do I do? My best friend uh, uh, got bit on the tip of the dick, tip of his dick by a snake. I'm doing it a grave injustice, but yeah, sure. uh, 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 it's like okay, doc. Friend runs back to the guy who's been bit by a snake on the tip of his dick. He's laying there. Man, what do, what did the doctor say? The doctor said you're gonna die. <laughs> you know, this is like the perfect, the perfect fucking. You gotta suck the poison out. That's what the yeah, that's yeah. what the doctor said. You know, like it, that. Sorry, I missed the entire set of punches. That was so but. funny because I assumed that was that was I assumed that's what the doctor said. So yeah. then I'm like, oh, like it's you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's so my fun. that's my favorite street. That's my go to street joke. If anyone asks. Is there a joke from another comedian that you wish you could steal? Like you saw it and you're like, I wish that was mine. I wish I could have oh, man. any part of it. Oh, man. I mean, are we talking peers or are we talking ghosts? It could be anybody. Uh, well, I could give you like a, a billion. You know, like obviously Dave's uh, He Rapes But He Saves is probably one of the most iconic bits in recent memory. Hmm. Um, uh uh, bullet control, you know, like that whole first chunk of Bigger and Blacker is fucking incredible. Um, Che's working on some stuff now that's just so funny. Uh, he's got a bit about um, uh, 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 in his previous special, Michael Che uh, matters. Um, the all buildings matter. That joke is, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if we're gonna, I don't know what number joke it is, but it's one of the best jokes I think ever. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic uh but yeah there's there's, there's a litany of those like there's a billion yeah. of those bits i would man i wish i thought of that shit you know but that that all buildings matter one that hits me because a is a peer of mine but because it was like it's like right there it's one of those yeah. right there bits you know um and it, it, it did hit me so yeah um do you have a short story of an interaction with a uh, legendary comedian living or dead that you would be willing to share for sure uh well there's two of them i'll give you two of them Okay. Sure. First one, obviously, I have to shout out my 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 goat, uh, Chris Rock. You know, like Che, uh, myself, and our friend Mike Denny um, used to run a show called Broken Comedy at Bar Matchless. I don't know if you ever came, but yeah, yeah. Um, in uh, July of 2015, uh, after I'd been rejected from JFL New Faces for the third time, this I'm going back tomorrow to do my two headlining shows. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I was so upset, you know, and I was at Matchless and uh, Chris Rock was coming to watch Langston Kerman and L- Chris was late. Langston couldn't go up. I see Chris walk in. I'm like, I'm going up. It's my show. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I went up, um, did great. He came up after me. He came up after the sh- after my set and he looked at me and said, you're really funny. i uh, like, that's insanity. <laughs> you're Chris yeah. Rock. And I'll never forget that. I know, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what he said, exactly how he said it. Uh, that I won't forget. And then in uh, uh, second story, pandemic, uh, Che invited me out. You know, Che got invited out by Dave to go to the uh, farm shows out in Ohio. Oh, in Ohio, yeah, yeah. And Che was like, you want to come? I was like, yeah, let's go. I'd love to attend. You know, my wife and I, we went. Um, and we're there in the green room. And uh, Neil Brennan had just told Dave who I was, like, "Oh, oh, that's you, 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 a comedy gangster." And I was like, "Sure." Uh, <laughs> but, you know, my wife and I, we told him like we that Columbia thing happened like a week after we got engaged. Mm. Um, and Dave said to us, "Man, you guys are like 
force gumping your way through all your relationship is force gumping your way through all these crazy comedy moments. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess you're kind of right, you know, because we were supposed we had I think we had just gotten married like a, like mm. legally married like a week before uh, the 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 uh, Yellow Spring shows. And we a week before Columbia happened, I we gotten engaged. So he was just like, you, you guys are really force gumping your way through this whole comedy game, man. It's like I never heard it articulated that way, but goddamn, you're, you're, we are, man. It's like that's, that's really how funny. I know you guys are gonna last. I'm like, that's thank you, Dave. I appreciate it, man. I'll never forget that. Um, I got a picture of that. That interaction. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for an aspiring comedian or comedy maker? Discipline. Uh. Comedy is the most entrepreneurial endeavor that no one talks about being an entrepreneurial endeavor. And anyone that became successful in any field had a tremendous amount of discipline. Um, and the more discipline you apply to your, uh, if you apply discipline to comedy, you will see maybe mm. not immediately, but also maybe immediately direct benefits from a writing perspective and from a stage perspective, you know, like I'm not the most disciplined person. I like, but that anytime I've been disciplined, it's given me rewards. Um, I'll tell you a story about Hannibal. I remember Hannibal would listen to his sets constantly, you know, like after shows you and Aziz too, like you would see yeah. them with their headphones on, just like scribbling shit down. And like, it's Hannibal and Aziz, like the, the, that discipline, the discipline required to do that, I never had it, but the discipline yeah. required to do that, um, the evidence is right there. That that I can tell you these are some of the most disciplined people on the planet when it comes to their comedy writing. Apply discipline to your comedy mm -hmm. and, and you will feel better yeah. about what you're doing, if anything. You, know, you may not necessarily become the greatest or whatever, but you will feel better. Like, I'm working every day to make this shit happen. Uh, and, and last one, do you have a joke that you thought was so funny you brought on stage and it did not work maybe you did a few times and didn't work but you will go to your grave being like that was funny i was right there wrong yes uh definitely 100 percent um it's a joke about afghanistan the war in afghanistan uh how and anytime there's military people in the room I, i'd make sure i bring it up with the, the it's a slight it's like maybe a two minute bit but it's a, a, a minute and a half bit where if someone's in the military i ask them where they serve they say afghanistan i'm like can I ask you a personal question? Can I, are you okay talking about it? Like, yes. Most all of them say yes. I'm like, did you ever shoot anyone that looks like me? That usually gets a big laugh. Uh, um, and, you know, they never respond yes or no, whatever it is. Yeah. And they say the war in Afghanistan was the funniest war of all time. You know, we spent 20 years and $2 trillion building schools, hospitals, and democracy in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, <laughs> we barely have that shit here. <laughs> like, yeah. like, to me, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I know maybe it's not a guffaw, but like <laughs> as like a as a joke, like that's just like in the cosmic sense of a joke. Yeah, maybe yeah. not best, but as a joke, that's fucking fantastic, you know. And it's it's a little rip off of uh, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s the uh, uh, why I oppose the war in Vietnam speech, mm. where he says, you know, we're sending little brown boys and uh, brown girls and uh, to fight along white boys and white girls. Uh, to to shoot you know other people uh, in another country. Meanwhile, we wouldn't let those two groups live together here. Mm. What are we doing? You know, we, we're trying to spread all this, build all the shit in another country. We don't spend those resources to take care of our own. Like, what what's going on right here? That's why I oppose the war in Vietnam. That's why I oppose the war in Afghanistan. It's like we're doing all the shit. We spent two trillion dollars. Yeah, two trillion. That's like I forget what the math is like. 
That's 40, 50 billion dollar hospitals. You know, the biggest hospital in like Florida costs like 100 or 200 million dollars or something like or a billion dollars. Even it's a, it's yeah. like that's how much we spent to kill people and we did nothing. I don't feel safer at all. Do you? No. You know, it's like what like I I'm not a nationalist in that sense, but I am a nationalist in that sense. I'm like, yo, what why are we we're killing people, we're doing all this shit on the defense budget. It's like the best defense is a great offense. Like, yo, let's fuck let's be healthy and smart. Yeah. You know, fuck we killing people for. But yeah, that's the joke. That's the that's, that's, the, joke. that's, I will that's go to, the joke. That will go to yeah. my grave with thinking that's fucking fantastic. I might put it on my tombstone. <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. I had a great time. Very much appreciate your time. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Thank You China on YouTube. Follow Namesh on social media at Finding Namesh. Good One is produced by so myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Godmashrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to sets and hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.